a word in the English language that typically, when it's spoken, it inspires a letdown. And that word is the word but. Have you ever heard that word? Typically, when you hear that word, it, it, it precedes something that is negative. You know, usually I love your cooking, but... No, no, I, I think you look great in that dress. You don't look fat, but... Have you ever heard that? That word is usually before something that you just don't want to hear. A young man was actually walking with his girlfriend on the pier. Beautiful, beautiful night. Moonlight, the waves glistening, the reflecting the light, and it, it was just amazing. The young man stopped his girl, got down on one knee, opened up the box and said, will you marry me? And she said, you know I love you, but... A young person who actually was at the doctor's office and the doctor said, you know, I know that your cancer has been in remission for, for years. And I know you're eating a vegetarian, even a vegan diet. But sometimes the word but is not the word that we want to hear. Because of what comes after it. But I'm here to tell you that actually one of my favorite, most beautiful and profound passages in the Bible has the word but in it. And we're going to look at that today. But if you would, bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and we ask that you please, please send your spirit to be here. Dear God, we, we need you. And as I speak today, Lord, this is not a very flattering portrayal of who I am, but Lord, it's a beautiful picture of who you are. Lord, this message is all about your resurrection power. And I pray that you please baptize us here with your Holy Spirit and glorify your own name. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1. And you know, the beauty of this text, Paul is writing to a group, the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus was basically a, a pagan community. This, this place is pagan. They're worshiping idols. They're living crazy wild lives. And God came in and changed them. And here Paul is talking to a group of people living in the world. 
And the beauty of this text is that you can almost see this text talking directly to us. It's almost speaking to us individually. And so as we do that, let's take a look and see what Paul says. It says, and you hath he quickened, for those reading the King James Version, which just is a fancy word for made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You hath he made alive who were dead. Dead man walking. Have you heard that term? It's a term that they use for people who are sentenced to death. They're going to die. And it makes sense. They're as good as dead. They may as well be dead. They'll be that shortly. But is it possible to be alive and actually dead? Is that possible? He's talking here to a group of people. It says, you who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is a, this is a figurative death, right? This isn't just a, they weren't literally dead. But they were spiritually dead. Is it possibly to be spiritual? Is it possible to be spiritually dead? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, said that you tithe on your cumin and your dill, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, which is love. Your whitewashed tombs, basically implying that they were dead. Dead man walking. Spiritually dead. How did they get to this place? How is it that we can be dead inside. Let's take a look. You hath he made alive who are dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Well, it just makes sense. Satan, who we know to be the prince of the power of the air, we've been walking according to his power. And he wants nothing more than for us to be dead. He hates God that much. And so he hits God below the belt. He hits him where it hurts, his kids. He wants us dead. And here we are. It's interesting that talking to you and to me, he says you were dead. Basically saying that all of us are dead spiritually. And then Paul actually does something very interesting in verse 3. It says, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Paul actually lumps himself in this equation. It's easy to see how a group of Gentiles, the the people in Ephesus, were dead spiritually, but Paul was a Jew. He should be alive. But he's saying that he was also dead. We all are dead inside. It says that we conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. By nature, children of wrath, children deserving of wrath. 
just like everybody else. You know, I know what it's like to to be dead, to be spiritually dead. I grew up in a good Christian home. In fact, my, my parents were Adventists. In fact, we were members here at this church. And they taught me the building blocks of what it is to be a Christian. My mom would read me the Bible at night. She'd read me the Bible stories. And I loved those bedtime stories, you know. And, I, and as a child, I loved Jesus. And then something happened. Things started to change. Started listening to music. Started watching things on TV that really influenced me. I was listening to mostly rap music. That was, that was my thing. And rap music told me what was cool. And I listened to Snoop, and he said that either you're a pimp or you're a hustler or you're a nobody. And I thought, well, I'm not really into degrading women, so I guess I've got to be a hustler. And sure enough, I learned my morality from the things that I had put in my mind. And I became dead. When I was 14, I moved from this church and I went to Ohio. And I was already smoking cigarettes when I was here. Probably started that when I was around 11. And one thing led to another. Eventually, I'm smoking weed. And then after a certain point, weed doesn't get you high anymore. So then I moved on to the next drug, the next thing, you know, because I I wanted to have fun, and it was fun at first. You know, by the time I was 16, I, I, I was actually sitting in my math class, and the guy that was sitting in front of me told me that he's making $75,000 a year, and he's only 17 years old. I said, well, how are you doing that? He said, well, I'm, I'm just selling weed. I said, are you kidding me? Just selling weed, and you're getting that much money? Well, it was Christmas time. And I was too young to have a job. I was about 15 years old. And so my dad gave me $100. He said, go and buy gifts for the family. And so I took that, and I'm thinking, you know, this just doesn't make sense. My mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, that's just $25 each. I can't get them anything good for 25 bucks. And so I thought, huh, I could call the guy that sat in front of me in math class. And so I called him. I gave him the $100, and he gave me two ounces of weed. And I didn't even know how to sell weed. I didn't know what I was doing, but I learned from the music that I was listening to. (laughs) And sure enough, I bagged it up, and I sold it all within a day. I made all my money back, and I still had some weed left. And I had money extra to to buy all of the gifts. And I thought, man, this is going to be the best Christmas ever. But sure enough, I didn't realize where that was going to take me. It was fun. By the time I was 16 years old, I was making more money than anybody I knew. 
And then my best friend, Wes, he and I actually used to hang out a lot. And Wes had actually come to my house and he bought a bag, just a bag of weed. And he had just met a girl the night before in Pittsburgh. And so he was going to go visit her. And he ended up buying a bag and driving off. Well, the next morning, I got a phone call. It was from somebody named Steve. He was going to YSU. And he called me and he says, Justin, I'm so sorry, man. I said, what are you talking about, man? What? What, what are you sorry about? He said, Justin, I'm sorry about Wes. I said, dude, what do you mean? What about Wes? Like, you don't even know my friends. We're in high school. You're in college. How, how do you even know what happened to my friend Wes? He said, dude, Wes died last night. I said, you're crazy, man. And I hung up the phone, and I was frantic, so I called Wes's aunt, and, and sure enough, he had died. He had just left my house, and... And I know exactly what he had on him. He had about a quarter sheet of acid and a gram and a half of powder and a bunch of pills. And Wes was what we called sketched out. He had done a lot of acid. And so he was very paranoid. And he got paranoid over everything, you know. And so he got pulled over because the car that he was driving to Pittsburgh was not registered in his name. It was registered in his father's name. And so the police officers thought that he had stolen the vehicle. And so they reached inside of the car and they put the gun inside. And like I said, my friend Wes was sketched out. He was very paranoid. And so he hit the gas and as he drove off, it broke the cop's arms. And they drove. And they drove something like 40 miles. Something like 15 cop cars chasing him and the ghetto bird in the sky flying after him. And then they set up the road spikes. He hit the spikes. The car flipped over, and he crashed into a big tree. The car exploded on impact. And the worst thing is that my friend Wes, he was paranoid. He didn't want to go to jail. He, he didn't want to get arrested for drugs. And so he took all of the acid. And that is the worst most terrifying, painful death I could ever imagine someone to have to go through. Being burned alive, tripping on acid. And you would think that something like this would turn me around. You would think that this would be enough to wake me up. But I was only 16. And in fact, it only made me worse. I went on continuing doing worse and worse drugs, starting to s smoke crystal meth and, and do all kinds of pills and all the rest. And I was doing about five to $600 worth of dope every day just to myself. And I could afford it because I was selling dope. Then my other best friend, Andy. My friend Andy and I were pretty reckless we used to play a game, who can do the most dope and not die? I guess I won. 
And the craziest thing about it is, is that when I found out how much he did, I did the same amount. He overdosed. It started out fun, but it quickly went downhill. I hated my life. I was miserable. There was no way to escape. I'd been to rehab. I went to rehab the first time when I was 16 years old. There was no hope. But God. But God. In verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. But God, this is my favorite but in the Bible. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love. You know, there's a verse that we commonly quote as Christians. Everyone knows this verse, even non-Christians. John 3.16. Have you heard it? What does it say? For God so loved the world. And how did he display that love? That he gave. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But God loved us. Think of God's love. The Bible says that God is love. It doesn't say that God is loving It says that he is love. He is the complete embodiment of love. Can you imagine the father having to give up his one and only perfect son to come down to this wretched, miserable world that stinks with decay and sin and death? to come down here and take upon himself my sins. Knowing full well what they were going to do to him. Knowing that they were going to laugh at him. Knowing that they were going to mock him. Knowing that they were going to beat him and spit on him. Yet he still loved us enough to give his son. Could you imagine parents giving up your child? I'm not a parent and I can't even imagine. He loved us that much. They strung him up on a cross and he hung there. And when he said that he was thirsty, they laughed at him and they mocked him and they said, why don't you ask Elijah to come down and, you know, and to bring you down? They, this is the most terrible thing that could ever happen to somebody. Yet he chose to do it for us because he loved us. It says that even when we were dead in trespasses and sins in verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. Typically, we give a definition of grace. And the definition is this, unmerited favor. Is that a good definition for grace? Someone who doesn't deserve the favor that is given to them? Yes, I I believe it is. But it's actually an incomplete definition. Unmerited favor is just a portion of what God's grace actually is. Because if we look in this next verse, we see something very interesting. You see, when we look at the very first verse that we started with, in verse chapter 2, verse 1, it, it begins with the word and. Isn't that interesting? And is a connector. It's connecting us to something that was preceding it, correct? And so Paul likes to do this. He writes complicated statements. Peter actually said that it was complicated in one of his books, Paul's writings. But the thing is, he makes these parenthetical statements. He'll say something, and then he'll say something else that kind of go off on a tangent, and then he'll come back to what he was talking about prior. And we can actually see what he was talking about. In chapter 1, verse 15, It starts where Paul is is giving a prayer. He's praying for the people. And actually in verse 16 it says that he doesn't cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you in the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of the understanding being enlightened, that you may know, this is awesome, the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then, here is where Paul is referencing when he is making this statement about grace in chapter 2. And it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? What he's saying is that grace is power. Grace is is God's power towards us. But how powerful is this power? Well, it actually says it. According to the working of his mighty power, verse 20 of chapter 1, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That is epic power. Can you imagine anything greater than the power that God the Father used to raise his son Jesus up from the dead? Because I can't. Even from the creation of the world, no greater power has been displayed than the power that God used to resurrect his son Jesus. And this is grace. Because look, it's interesting. It says that the power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And then if we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, it says in verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus. That's exactly the same language. Isn't that awesome? Grace is power for us. And so when we are saved by God's grace, we are saved by the power that God used to resurrect his son Jesus. 
That's awesome. You know, when Jesus died, it was a horrible thing. But the beauty of his death is that he didn't stay dead. You know, when I, I was living that life, I was dead, completely empty. I had no hope. I've been to rehab time and time again, about four or five times, trying to quit. And I wanted to quit. I tried to quit for 10 years with no hope. I was miserable. I was dead. And I thought maybe, just maybe, if God is real, maybe he'll help me. I ended up, just, I just re-upped, which is basically got a bunch of drugs so that I can make more money. And about eight or ten people showed up at my house all at the same time to get dope. And I didn't know what was going on. But I just had to send them away. I, I said, look, there's nothing going on here. There, and that was very out of character of me because I loved money. I said, there's nothing going on. Everybody's got to go. I didn't realize it was the Holy Spirit of God convicting me. I had no idea. I sent my girlfriend into the room. I said, babe, just go in there, roll a blunt or something because I got to be alone. I went into my bedroom and I turned off the lights. And I prayed a prayer that I'd never prayed before. You see, I had been praying, but I usually prayed selfish prayers. Lord, please, don't let me get pulled over with this dope in the car. Selfish. Lord, please, let this drug deal go well. Please, don't let me get stabbed again. But this was a prayer that I'd never prayed. It was simple. It was these words exactly. God, do whatever it is you've got to do to change me. That was it. So simple. I passed out. And this was early because it was only about 2 in the morning and that's when all the clubs get out. Everybody wants to get high and whatnot because they're all drunk. And, and I passed out. And the very next thing that I awoke to was this huge crash. And I was terrified because I thought Jesus was coming. <laughs> and then I looked up and I was so confused and I looked and saw what it actually was. It was about eight or ten guys with big black ski masks on, big plastic shields and machine guns. And I looked at them and I thought, thank God I'm just going to jail. <laughs> It's better than the alternative if Jesus was coming. But, uh, and you know, I knew at that moment that this was the answer to the prayer that I had just prayed. And I told that to the cops. Someone had worn a wire to my house and did a controlled buy. And so they said, you know, that they were here for that. And, and I said, look, you guys don't know this, but you're an answer to the prayer that I just prayed. And they thought I was crazy. <laughs> but I didn't care. 
and they put those handcuffs on my wrist. The shackles that I had that bound me to this world were broken. I'm sitting there. I'm on the love seat there crying with my girlfriend. And we're both crying. We don't know what's going to happen, you know. Who knows what, what's next? And, and I put my head down and I prayed another selfish prayer. I said, God, let him find all the weed. Please, let him find all the weed. But please don't let him find the powder, the cocaine. Because it's a much bigger charge. It's, it's fed time, anything over seven grams. And I said, amen. And I looked up at the hole where my door used to be. And in walks the sheriff. And the sheriff is walking in with a German shepherd drug dog. And the dog just looks at me, and then he looks down like he was completely ashamed. And I didn't even know dogs could make that face. <laughs> you know, I really... And it, the dog, they're walking around, and they're like, what's up with the dog? How come the dog's not working? And they walk around and they go and they find, you know, the weed because it's a bunch of big bags and that's easy to find, you know. And they're walking around and and they say to me, where's the money at? And I say, I've got $900 inside of a black jacket pocket hanging in my closet, but I swear it's not from drugs. (laughs) I don't know why I thought they believed me, but... (laughs) But the thing was, they go inside of the jacket and they reach inside of the pocket and they say, there's nothing there. And I say, inside pocket, black jacket. They go again, nothing. Third time, they bring it to me and they reach inside the pocket and they say, there's nothing in here. And somehow I just knew they weren't supposed to find that money. I don't know why or how. And I said, well, there's $600 inside of the bottom of a shoe inside of the closet. And so they go and they get the money. They get the $600. We hit the jackpot. (laughs) But uh, the thing was, you know, they're laughing at me, making fun of me and all this stuff, and I deserved it. And then they try to get my girlfriend to, to snitch on me. They take her outside, just right outside of the door, and right there by the window, and they say that all you have to do is tell on Justin and you won't have to get in trouble today. She says, what do you think, I'm stupid? And I could hear every word because I, there was no door, you know, it's gone. And so we both ended up going to jail that night. I got on the phone and I called my mom and dad, whom I hadn't spoken to in months, even though I only lived a few blocks away from them. I thought, well, I'm making enough money now. I can live in my parents' neighborhood. But I was too ashamed to go and visit them because I knew what I was doing was wrong. I called my mom and dad, and I said, Mom, Dad, I'm in jail. Would you bond me out? And they said, no, we can't. And that was the right thing for them to do. I said, well, I love you guys, and I got to go. I hung up the phone, and, and I look, and as, as soon as I look, I see that the, the booking officer is booking me in, but he's booking me out at the same time. I'm like, well, this is strange. 
I thought that my parents were going to bond me out. And the booking officer says, it's not your parents. I said, well, that's odd. All of a sudden, I get picked up from the jail by this girl. And she takes me down on the corner, which is basically where all the big drug deals happen in Florida. And there he is, my weed man. And he looks at me and he shakes his head and he says, man, I told you not to mess with that powder dog. I said, man, you were right. You were right. I said, but what about my girlfriend? She's still locked up in there. He said, nah, I just paid $1,800 cash that I had in my pocket to bond you out just now. I, I'd have to go and, and back to out of the county to go get the rest of the money, you know. I, and I, besides, I didn't even know that she even mattered to you. I said, no, man, I, I care about her. I need to get her out somehow. And I think God has provided a way. And so I went back to my apartment where I lived and my place is just all completely disheveled. Everything's upside down. It's all, you know, my bed is there with my bookcase on my bed and then my carpet on top of my bookcase. And there on top of that carpet is a black jacket. I go to grab the jacket and I reach inside and boom, pull it out. $900, exactly her bond. Oh, wow, this is amazing. So I go and bond her out. We get back to my place and everybody told me, don't go there. Don't go back there because they're watching you. They, you know, that's a terrible place to go. But I'm like, where do I go? This is where I live. And so I went back and I said, babe, let's do something normal tonight. Usually we go to the club and get drunk and act dumb. Let's do something normal. Let's just go get a bite to eat. I said, it's kind of chilly. So go ahead and grab your jacket. And she reached over, grabbed her little brown hoodie, and she put it on and reached inside of the pockets and, boom, pulled it out, all of the cocaine, all bagged up in separate baggies. And each of those is a charge. And I looked at her, and she wasn't even a Christian, and I said, this is a test from God. And she says, well, then you better flush it. So I took the powder and I went to the toilet and I'm standing there and I'm thinking to myself, you know what, maybe if I just don't sell any of it and just do it all, God won't be mad at me. I thought, no, that's stupid. That's stupid. God knows I need money. Maybe if I just don't do any of it and sell it all, God won't be mad. And that's when I realized the madness of it. That I had no power over this substance. I was completely dead. But God, I just prayed a prayer, shot it up to God. It was simple. I, it wasn't even real words. It was just my spirit groaning with his, just God help me. And all of a sudden I look down and I see my hand dumping out the powder. And I'm like, this is actually happening. <laughs> like, like usually when I look at it, dollar signs run in my head like Bugs Bunny, you know. And I, you know, but it lost all of its power in my hands. It, it like went from dirt, from gold to dirt right in my hands. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And at this point, I knew God wanted me to stop selling cocaine. But I didn't realize he wanted me to stop drinking and smoking weed. So I was still doing that. 
And exactly one week later to the day after I got my door kicked in, I was leaving the bar with my girlfriend and we got into some argument about something stupid. And so we're, we're yelling, <laughs> talking really loudly at each other. And all of a sudden I realize that the car is shaking. And I look and we're off the road and we're going down a hill. And this is like the only hill in Florida. We're going down. <laughs> And I, and I see that I'm, off on the, I'm not on the road at all anymore. And we're hurtling straight towards this giant concrete pole. And I didn't know what to do. I tried to turn us back up, but I couldn't because it was up this hill. Then I tried to turn us down into the trees because I thought that would be a better death than this pole. And I just shot up a prayer. And I just said, God, I don't want us to die. And let go. And exactly seven feet from the pole, the car flipped up the hill and landed on the tires back on the road. And she only had one little scratch on her elbow. This is when I realized God wanted me to quit drinking. (laughs) Needless to say, I went to jail again that night for DUI. And while I was there in jail, I knew that it was God who answered my prayer. And so I started studying my Bible. I, I, I started praying and I started reading this book and it started to change my life. And I saw something in specifically Hebrews chapter, chapter 12 that changed me. I used to think that every time I went to jail it was because God was sick and tired of me. He was just putting me in time out. He, 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 was, he was done with me. But I found that the opposite was true. I found that me being in jail was evidence that God loves me and only wants the best for me. Any parent that loves their child is going to correct their child. And I saw that. I said, wow, this is the God. He loves me enough to correct me. And I started sharing this with all of the other inmates. I couldn't keep it in. At first they laughed at me. But eventually, all of them started coming to my Bible studies and God worked a miracle that every single man in my pod was completely transformed by the power of God. Except for one guy. His name was James. I won't tell you his last name, but he was a self-professed pagan. He said, I'm a pagan, and most of you guys are too. You just don't know it. He would pray to the demons, to the spirits. And he always used to say, you know what? I'm going to hell anyways. I may as well get out of jail for it. And I always told him, James, don't do that. If you're going to pray to anyone, at least pray to God. He cares about you. He didn't want to hear it. In fact, he hated me because I was a Christian. And one day after lunch, see, everybody takes a nap after after lunch because there's nothing to do in jail. And God woke me up, and I heard James with my own ears talking about me and how he wanted to make a shank. And what a shank is is it's a makeshift knife that people use when you're locked up to stab people. 
he wanted to make a shank to use it on me because I was giving Bible studies. And immediately I started praying. I said, God, Lord, you sent your son Jesus to die for James just like you died for me. I said, Lord, please don't let Jesus to have died in vain on James's behalf. And this is the moment when I realized that I was changing because I completely forgot to even pray for my own safety. I forgot. And I knew that I didn't have to. In fact, I refused to. I knew that if I continued doing what God had me do, which was giving Bible studies consistently, if not more so, which I actually did, God will protect me. And if not, then hey, I'll get to be with him sooner. (laughs) One day, I was coming in from talking to my attorney. At this point, I'm facing 21 years in prison um, because they had done the controlled buy and I had basically admitted to everything because I didn't want my girlfriend to have to take the charge from me, which is not what you're supposed to do when you get in trouble. My attorney called me out and he he said, you know, Justin, why did you tell him that you did it? They're never going to give you a deal. He says, it will be impossible for you to get a deal. And I looked at him and I said, I know otherwise. He looked at me like I was crazy. I said, I know otherwise. He says, how? I'm your attorney. I talk with the state every day. They're not going to give you a deal. I said, God has been carrying me like a lion carries his cubs by the nape of the neck. And he hasn't dropped me off the cliff yet. What makes you think he's going to start now? And he looked at me and he just said, huh. I guess you're right. (laughs) Which was awesome for me. But I knew that it wasn't presumptuous to think this. I knew that I didn't deserve to get out of jail, to get out of going to prison for all those years. It's not fair. But I don't have a God that operates under what we call fair. It wasn't fair that Jesus would leave his high place in heaven, come down on this screwed up earth, take upon himself what I deserve so that I can have what only he deserves. That's not fair. And I saw as I was studying the Bible, the character of this God that loved me enough to punish me, not to punish me, but to correct me. And I saw the story of the prodigal son. Here's a man who had gone and wasted everything that his father had given on riotous living, me. And when he came back to his father, his father ran to meet him. He took his coat right off of his own back. He took the shoes right off of his feet and gave it to him. He took his ring, and that ring carried some important significance in that time. That was basically like the black card of the family. This was your credit. Now, he says, you're equal to me in the family business. And they had a party. They slayed the fatted calf. And they had a big old extravaganza. 
I thought, this is the God that this is how he's going to treat me when I come back to him. I saw in the story of the prodigal son that the father actually gave more to his son when he came back than what he had when he first left. That's awesome. I walked in from speaking to my attorney and all of a sudden James, the man with the shank that hated me, calls me into the bathroom. And the bathroom is not a pleasant place to go when you're locked up because there's no cameras in there. And typically that's where people go to fight. And I had developed this habit of shooting up prayers to God because in jail, let's face it, like there's criminals in there. It's not pleasant. And so they're, they're not happy. And so I would shoot up these prayers to God because every time I'd ever have to go to the bathroom is because someone wanted to fight me. And I'd have to say, look, you know, I'm a Christian now. If you really want to fight me, that's fine. But I'm not going to fight down. I'm not backing. I, I, I'm not going to fight back. I'm not backing down, but I'm not going to fight back. So you can fight me all you want. They'd hit me a few times. And then they'd get mad because they'd realize that I was telling the truth. I wasn't going to fight back. Then they'd help me up. And both of those times, they actually ended up joining my Bible studies. Both of those guys. <laughs> so when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he actually meant it literally. <laughs> But it's still, it sucks to get hit, you know. <laughs> so I'm praying to God, and I walk inside of the bathroom where James is. And James says, you know what I was going to do? I was going to pray to the spirits so that I could get out of jail. And I said, yeah, and I told you not to do that. He said, I was going to do it last night. He said, Justin, but as I was about to, all of a sudden, this giant weight just pressed down on me. And Justin, I was so terrified, the only thing I could do was pray to God. I was the only person he could tell. He actually came in and sat in on my Bible study that night. It was amazing. Here I am facing 21 years. And I'm guilty. And I walk into the courtroom confident. Not in myself. But in him. You see, I'd appealed my case to a higher court. And I'd said to God, I said, God, I'm giving you Bible studies in here. And you know what? I've been serving myself and ultimately Satan all these years. I said, God, if I can have the privilege to serve you for the next 21 years in prison, I'll be happy. But I guess God had other plans. Because I walked inside of the courtroom and the prosecutor says, you know, Your Honor, we have a very strong case against Mr. Montero. In fact, he admitted to everything. I don't know why I'm saying this, but I think we should give him a second chance at life. Now it's up to the judge. And this is the judge that had told me that if he ever saw me in his courtroom, that he would throw the book at me. He basically told me that he didn't like me. And now it's up to him. 
He looks down. He was looking down at his papers. He looked at the state. He looked at me. And then he looks back down and he says, you know what? I don't know why either. But I think you're right. Boom, hit the gavel on the desk. And I was out that day. In the, praise God. In verse 7, it says that the reason why he's raised us up so that we can sit together in heavenly places, that in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness to usward who believe, to usward in Christ Jesus. Throughout all of eternity, we are going to be trying to search out the depths of the love of God, and we're never going to be able to exhaust it. In verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Have you heard this verse before? It's a beautiful text. We know that we have been saved by grace, not by our works. But typically, when we hear this verse, it cuts off there, the end of verse 9, and we never read verse 10. And I think that verse 10 is so beautiful. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, some would say that we're saved by grace. But the whole sanctification thing, that's my job. That's not true. We're saved by grace through faith. And what we just saw is that grace is the power of God the mechanism that God uses to resurrect us from the dead, from being spiritually dead. That's awesome. God uses his grace to resurrect us. And the beautiful thing is that here, not of works lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship. Our sanctification our growing up to be like Jesus, that's his job too. Praise the Lord. This word workmanship, I love this word. It's a fascinating word. In the Greek, the word is poieo. And poieo is actually the same word that they used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. And it's the same word that they use for God when describing his creative power. When God created the heavens and earth, the word that is used is poieo. That is power. That is awesome, glorious power. The power that when God speaks, it happens. And that's the power that God uses in us to make us more like him. We are his workmanship or his masterpiece. You see, God doesn't just create us. God's creative power is not just something that stands solid and powerful and firm. God creates beautiful things. God 
creates powerfully beautiful things. God has created us to be a masterpiece. Poetry in motion. In fact, the word poieo sounds a little bit like our English word poetry because that's where that word is derived from. It's a work of art. And that's what God has created us to be. God will resurrect us. And it's simple. You may be saying to yourself, I, I've never done what he's done. I'm not like him. I've never sinned like that. But the truth is, dead is dead. There's no a little bit dead. It's like being a little bit pregnant. Either you are or you aren't. We're dead spiritually. And unless we are resurrected by God, we're going to stay dead. How do we have this resurrected power? It's simple. All we've got to do is ask for it. As simply as I asked for it that night. Are you willing to do that? It's something that we have to do every day. See, the Bible says that we are to die daily. But the beauty of dying daily is that we will be resurrected daily. If that's what you want, please bow with me in prayer. Bow your heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I thank you and I praise you for your great resurrection power. The power that you so want to work in us. And all that we have to do is ask. Here we are, Lord, asking. Resurrect us. In the name of your son, Jesus.